0: This is Public Occurrences, both foreign and domestic. And now your host, Michael O'Fallon. Pete Buttigieg has been back in the news quite a bit recently. Currently the head of the Department of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg has been on paternity leave over the last two months, and he and his husband have taken paternity leave with their adopted new children. In the meantime, the entire transportation and logistics infrastructure that has collapsed around the United States, leaving shelves bare and stores without goods to sell and shoppers and consumers left without the ability to both buy items that they want and items that they need, are left helpless. But Secretary Buttigieg is absent. And he is absent and, from all appearances, doesn't really care. Neither do the other cabinet members in the Treasury and Commerce Departments of the current Biden administration. And once again, I would remind you that none of this is a mistake. None of what has amounted to the disrupting and dismantling of America is by some incompetency or lack of attention. It is all intentional. The shortages, the transportation issues, are all part of what would constitute The Manifest Destiny of Pete Buttigieg. Because you need to understand Pete Buttigieg. And you need to understand Pete Buttigieg's roots and his upbringing. The father of Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg was a Marxist professor who spoke fondly of the Communist Manifesto and dedicated a significant portion of his academic career to the work of Italian Communist Party founder Antonio Gramsci, an associate originally of Vladimir Lenin. Joseph Buttigieg, who died in 2019 at the age of 71, immigrated to the United States in the 1970s from Malta, a place that I've been to. It's quite beautiful. And then in 1980, he joined the University of Notre Dame's faculty, where he taught modern European literature and literary theory. Joseph Buttigieg supported an updated version of Marxism that jettisoned some of Marx's and Engels' more doctrinaire theories, though he was undoubtedly a Marxist. He was an advisor to Rethinking Marxism, an academic journal that publishes articles that seek to discuss, elaborate, and or extend Marxian theory. And he was a member of the editorial collective of Boundary 2, a journal of postmodern theory. Literature and culture. He spoke at many Rethinking Marxism conferences and at other gatherings of prominent Marxists. In a paper written back in the year 2000 for Rethinking Marxism, critical of the approach of Human Rights Watch, Buttigieg, along with two other authors, refers to the Marxist project to which we subscribe. In 1998, he wrote in an article for the Chronicle of Higher Education about an event in New York City celebrating the 150th anniversary of the Communist Manifesto. He also participated in the event. Quote, If the Communist Manifesto was meant to liberate the proletariat, the manifesto itself in recent years needed liberating from Marxism's narrow post-Cold War orthodoxies and exclusive cadres. It has been freed, he wrote. He continues, After a musical interlude, seven people read different portions of the manifesto. Listening to it read, No one could help but be struck by the poignancy of its prose, he wrote. The readers had implicitly warned even us faithful to guard against conferring upon it the status of scripture, a repository of doctrinal verities, end quote. Again, he continues, Equity, environmental consciousness and racial justice are surely some of the ingredients of a healthy Marxism. And on a side note, is that not the very center of what is being shoved down our throats today? Joseph Buttigieg continues, quote, Indeed, Marxism's greatest appeal, undiminished by the collapse of communist edifices, is the imbalances produced by other sociopolitical governing structures, end quote. Paul Kegnor, a professor at Grove City College and an expert in communism and progressivism, said Buttigieg was among a group of leftist professors who focused on injecting Marxism into the wider culture. He said, quote, they're part of a wider international community of Marxist theorists and academicians with a particular devotion to the writings of the late Italian Marxist theorist Antonio Gramsci, who died over 80 years ago. Gramsci was all about applying Marxist theory to culture and cultural institutions, what is often referred to as the long march through the institutions, such as film, media, and especially education, end quote. This is from Kegnor, and this is what he was telling the Washington Examiner. But Pete Buttigieg, an only child, shared a close relationship with his father. In his memoir, Shortest Way Home, Pete called his dad a man of the left, no easy thing on a campus like Notre Dame in the 1980s. He wrote that while he did not understand his parents' political discussions as a young child, quote, the more I heard these aging professors talk, the more I wanted to learn how to decrypt their sentences and to grasp the political backstory of the grave concerns that commanded their attention and arouse such fist-pounding dinner debate. End quote. Pete wrote that his dad was supportive when he came out as gay. He and his husband bought a house in South Bend around the corner from his parents, which gave the couple, quote, a good support network despite our work and travel schedules, end quote, when they decided to get a dog. The elder Buttigieg was best known, of course, within the Notre Dame community, as really being, and also the translator, of the greatest works of Gramsci. He was a leading scholar. This is what people knew him for all over the world. When you heard the name Buttigieg, you didn't think of Mayor Pete. You didn't think of Department of Transportation. You thought of his dad, Joseph Buttigieg, the expert on Gramsci. Just like if you had heard the name Bill Gates 30 years ago. Many people in the Seattle, Washington area would have thought, well, yes, that's Bill Gates, the eugenicist. Bill Gates Jr.'s father. So, Joseph Buttigieg completed the authoritative English translation of Gramsci's prison notebooks, and his articles on Gramsci have been translated into, I think it's now five languages. But Buttigieg was a founding member and president of the International... Gramsci Society, an organization that aims to facilitate communication and the exchange of information among the very large number of individuals from all over the world who are interested in Antonio Gramsci's life and work and in the presence of his thought in contemporary culture. So if you want to understand what ideas have influenced the actions of the current Secretary of Transportation, it would be wise to understand Antonio Gramsci. We'll begin with an overview of the thought of Antonio Gramsci, a Marxist intellectual and politician. But despite his enormous influence on today's politics, he remains far less well-known to most Americans than does Marx. But Gramsci's main legacy arises through his departures from what would be considered orthodox Marxism. But like Marx, he argued that all societies in human history have been divided into two basic groups. The privileged and the marginalized, the oppressor and the oppressed, the dominant and the subordinate. Gramsci expanded Marx's ranks of the oppressed into categories that right now, if you take a look across the landscape of the ideologies that are across the United States and as well as in in Western Europe, they endure, they dominate. Now, Gramsci wrote in his famous prison notebooks, Quote, the marginalized groups of history include not only the economically oppressed, but also women, racial minorities, and many criminals. End quote. So what Marx and his Orthodox followers described as the people, Gramsci describes as an ensemble of subordinate groups and classes in every society that has ever existed until now. This collection of the oppressed and marginalized groups, the people, lack unity, and often even consciousness of their own oppression. So in today's terms, we would say that they need a little bit of intersectionality, let's say. But then to reverse the correlation of power from the privileged to the marginalized, well, that was Gramsci's really declared goal. That's where he was going with things, and that would influence the next 100 years of thought. Power, in Gramsci's observation, is exercised by privileged groups or classes in two ways. Through domination force, or coercion, and through something called hegemony, which means the ideological supremacy of a system of values that supports the class group interests of the predominant classes or groups. But subordinate groups, Gramsci argued, are influenced to internalize the value systems and worldviews of the privileged groups, and thus to consent to their own marginalization. So far from being content with a mere uprising, Gramsci believed that it was necessary first to delegitimize the dominant belief systems of the predominant groups and to create a counter-hegemony. So a counter-hegemony, basically a new system of values for the subordinate groups. And so those Subordinate groups had to create that counter-hegemony before the marginalized could be empowered. And because those dominant groups, those hegemonic values from those dominant groups, because their values permeate all spheres of civil society, schools, churches, the media, uh, voluntary associations, let's say, we call those affinity groups, and, and even civil society itself, media, all those things, he argued, is the actual great battleground. Those things are where the battleground actually is in the struggle for hegemony. The war of positionality. So from this point of view, if you followed a corollary for which Gramsci could be known, it was that all life, everything in life, in civil society, in schools, in churches, in the media, in your sporting groups, and even in corporations. All of life in your faith, in things that you do with your family, in your culture, all life is political. So then private life, the workplace, religion, philosophy, art, literature, civil society, in general, are contested battlegrounds in the struggle to achieve societal transformation. This is what we've been talking about for the past three years and the causes of things and in this show. This is a transformation that is coming, but it's coming from a top-down, bottom-up, inside-out, and really in the inside, in the, if you will say, the meat of the sandwich. That's where the real fight is, and that's what's been happening to us. So it's Perhaps here that you can see that Gramsci's most important re-examination of Marx's thought. See, because classical Marxists, they implied that a revolutionary consciousness would simply develop from the objective, or let's say an oppressive material, conditions of working class life. In other words, you're oppressed and you're just going to get upset and you're going to make sure that you take back over what should be yours. But Gramsci disagreed, noting that there have always been exploiters and the exploited. But there have been very few revolutions, especially cultural revolutions. So in Gramsci's analysis, this was because subordinate groups usually lack the clear theoretical consciousness, as he would say, necessary to convert the, quote, structure of repression into one of the rebellion and social reconstructions. End quote. Revolutionary consciousness is crucial. Unfortunately, though, the subordinate groups possess false consciousness. That is to say, they accept the conventional assumptions and values of the dominant groups as legitimate. And so you've seen the same disagreement, the same argument happening today. In anywhere that you go, where people are willing to legitimize the other side. And as soon as they accept the conventional assumptions that are already there, they would say, well, that's from the hegemonic patriarchal system that already exists. So what's necessary then to reject those conventional assumptions is to come up with the ridiculous, the insane. That's where you can come up with 2 plus 2 equals 5. Because the conventional assumption is that 2 plus 2 equals 4. See, Gramsci thought that if you're going to have real change, this is what he continued to believe, that this real change can only come about through the transformation of consciousness, the way that you see things, the lenses by which you see the world. So just as Gramsci's analysis of consciousness is more nuanced than Marx's, so too is his understanding of the role of intellectuals in that process. So, you got to see, Marx had argued that for revolutionary social transformation to be successful, the worldviews of the predominant groups must first be unmasked as instruments of domination. In classical Marxism, this crucial task of demystifying and legitimizing the ideological hegemony of the dominant group is performed by intellectuals. But Gramsci, more subtly, he distinguishes between two types of intellectuals. He calls them, quote, traditional and organic, end quote. What subordinate groups need, Gramsci maintains, are their own organic intellectuals. The defection, though, of traditional intellectuals from the dominant groups to the subordinate groups, he held, is also important. Because the traditional intellectuals who have changed sides are well-positioned within the established institutions. So in other words, what you'd try to do is to create what would be called entryism, where you can get those that have, let's say, street cred within the intellectuals, the traditional intellectuals, and you bring them over to the other side, so the change sides, because the traditional intellectuals are well-positioned within those established institutions. So if you can get them to flip... Maybe let's say within a religious community, uh, maybe within a religious seminary, and you can get them to form a new coalition (laughs) where those that are traditionally thought as the the intellectuals begin to process and to come up with some of this new organic intellectual thought. Well, then everybody's going to start to follow them. So the metaphysics, or lack thereof, behind this Gramscian worldview, I think you're pretty familiar with. This is happening everywhere. This is happening throughout our fields of science and research. This, of course, as I was just saying, is happening within deeper theological institutions. And it's happening in our politics as well, where people are considered to be conservative. But then they flip, and they're still within that traditional group. But within their thought processes, they are now organic intellectuals. Instead of being objective in their approach towards finding truth, They have become subjective. And this is the thing that you see consistently across affinity groups, across education, across the sciences, across corporations. So you go from the objective, let's say, from a corporate standpoint, where within the corporate world, the objective thing is how much money is coming into a company? What is the return of investment in that company? Uh, Does this company pay their bills? Do they pay their employees on time? Are they well-insured? Well, that would give them what? Good credit. So that's your credit score. So instead, you want to start to change to a subjective criteria, and let's say an organic criteria of ecological, social, and governance, of sustainable development goals, of diversity, equity, and inclusion. That's how your credit score is now going to be shaped. As opposed to, do you pay your bills and is there growth in your company? So let's step back again and see it from the whole as this is happening everywhere as Gramsci had envisioned. It's happening within education. It's happening within religion. It's happening within society. It's happening within arts, entertainment, and culture. But how would Gramsci himself, though, describe his position? How would he say that he would best frame his approach to things. Well, Gramsci would describe his position as, quote, absolute historicism, end quote, meaning that morals, values, truths, standards, and human nature itself are products of a different historical epoch. There are no absolute moral standards that are universally true for all human beings outside of a particular historical context. Rather, morality is socially constructed. And how many times have you heard that phrase, socially constructed? But historically, Antonio Gramsci's thought shares features with other writers who are classified as, and you've heard this from me many times and from Dr. Lindsay many times, they're classified as Hegelian Marxists, such as with the Hungarian Marxist Georg Lukács. Uh, Members of the Frankfurt School, Theodor Adorno and Herbert Marcuse, a group of theorists associated with the Institute for Social Research, you know, was founded in Frankfurt, we call it the Frankfurt School, was founded in Germany in the 1920s, and some of whom attempted to synthesize the thinking of Marx and Freud. But all emphasized that the decisive struggle to overthrow the bourgeoisie regime, that is the middle class liberal democracy, would be fought out at the level of consciousness. That is, the old order had to be rejected by its citizens intellectually and morally before any real transfer of power to the subordinate groups could be achieved, out with the old and in with the new. So, the relation of all these abstractions to the nuts and bolts of American politics is, as the record shows, surprisingly direct. So now all of Gramsci's most innovative ideas, for example, that dominant and supporting groups based on race, ethnicity, and gender are engaged in struggles over power, that the personal is political, and that all knowledge and morality are social constructions, are assumptions and presuppositions at the very center of today's politics. So as James Lindsay and I have talked about at length over this past year, the very core of the Gramscian-Hegelian worldview— group-based morality, or the idea that what is moral is what serves the interests of the oppressed or marginalized ethnic, racial, and gender groups. That is what is going on. That's what the fervor is. That is what I I have called in the past the pomoid cluster. I think you best could describe it as an ideological stew or a virus that has had gain of function. I'll talk about that more later. But what we would also call critical theory is a direct descendant of the Gramscian and Hegelian Marxist thinking, and it is widely influential in both law and education and now throughout every part of our society. So where they would tell us that this is a legal construct, this is something that comes from a legal background, yes, critical legal studies – They posit that the law grows out of an unequal relation of power and therefore serves the interests of and legitimizes the rule of the dominant groups. Its subcategories include critical race theory, and here's the real root of things, the feminist legal theory. And so what is even happening now within the administration, with what you see happening with Merrick Garland and the Department of Justice and our legal studies— our legal approach to things, our way of actually administering the law really couldn't be any more Gramscian because it seeks to deconstruct bourgeoisie legal ideas that serve as instruments of power for the dominant groups and reconstruct them. They're reconstructing them to serve the interests of the subordinate groups as they see them. So, in other words where we would say that we need to be equal under the law. Remember that justice is blindfolded and so forth, and you don't have unequal weights and measures. They would say, oh no, it has never been equal. So what we're going to need to do now is make sure that it is unequal for a while. That it is unequal for those of you that are in the dominant groups. So most of these Hegelian Marxist Gramscian ideas are what inspired Pete Buttigieg's father. And they're what shaped Pete Buttigieg's thinking. And is what is resulting in the purpose deconstruction of our nation. Because Pete Buttigieg is the embodiment of the Gramscian critical theory approach to everything. And so when you see the articulate, good-looking young man, smoothly speaking into the camera on CNN on the Sunday morning political shows, know that his understanding of what America's fate should be is influenced by the most destructive, toxic, cancerous, tyrannical ideas of all time. And they're brought to you from Hegel to Marx through Gramsci, and ultimately through men like Herbert Marcuse and Pete's dad. It is, as Rudy Deutschki called, the long march through the institutions. And the long march has a destination and a time. America is the destination, and that time is now, because Pete Buttigieg is his father's son, and his father's ideological mentor was Antonio Gramsci, whose ideological mentor was Karl Marx, whose ideological mentor was George Frederick Hegel, whose ideological mentor was Rousseau. So yes, we are up against a steroidal form of cultural Marxism. And our nation is under complete cultural, political, and economic attack. But we have a weapon. And it is the one weapon that they must oppress and suppress. And that weapon is... truth. I'm Michael O'Fallon, and this has been Public Occurrences, Both Foreign and Domestic.